On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. David Louie about the theological interpretation of Scripture, particularly as it relates to the Psalms. We cover all sorts of topics like what is the theological interpretation of Scripture? How does it differ from other methods? How should we interpret things and understand things in the Psalms? How do they compare to other texts of Scripture? How can us modern Westerners that may be disengaged from things like poetry become better readers of the Psalms? Does Luther read the Psalms differently than the medieval scholastics? If so, why and how? And much, much more. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show in general, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. Well, I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. We are a podcast that is dedicated to serious thinking for a serious church. And one way we've tried to describe what it means to be serious about thinking. Uh, so if you're new to the show, you, you, you have never heard this. If you're a regular listener of the show, you've heard this a lot. And I say it in different ways, but the, the main idea is that we want to create and cultivate an intellectual culture of things like charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. Now, it's, it's a little bit snazzy because we have four C's, so that's cool to do it that way. But really what it boils down to is we think that Christians, in thinking carefully, must have a posture of humility and care for the other person, actually be interested in them, interested in why they say the things they th- say, and uh, that's going to open up a lot of opportunity to understand and explore new things. But at the flip side, we should also be careful thinkers and critical. Uh, we shouldn't just be a completely open blank slate with no actual doctrinal convictions. We should have and hold our convictions, but we should do it in a cheerful way. And so uh, hopefully when we talk about being confessional, we think it's good to have like an actual grounding of, of theology that a, a large group of people have said, this is an accurate summation of what Scripture teaches, and we should utilize that in our churches and in our, in our lives. Um, but we don't mean that to be, I'm totally closed off to anybody who disagrees with that. It actually opens up an opportunity uh, to be uh, to be kind to one another because you say, you know what, I disagree with you here and there's transparency and we can actually be friends about it and say, you know what, that's cool. So a lot of what we've tried to do with the podcast is really just develop friendships with people who think differently about a lot of stuff. So we talk about all sorts of things and it's a lot of fun. And today we have Dr. David Louie with us. And I've got to say, the the last Lutheran we had on the podcast, I think is Robert Kolb. And Robert is probably my favorite person we've ever had on the podcast. Maybe Todd Haynes was on recently. I don't know. And so if Todd, if you were on here more recently than, than Robert, then I'm sorry. But Todd, I guess, is also a very awesome Lutheran. So every Lutheran I've had on the podcast has been awesome. So you have a lot to live up to, David. I hope that you're going to be another awesome Lutheran uh, for the podcast. But we're going to be talking about uh, theological interpretation of Scripture, particularly related to the Psalms. So this should be a lot of fun. I, there was like six things I wanted to talk to you about. And so maybe we'll have to do more in the future. But before we do any of those things, tell me a little bit about yourself. And I, I give take shamelessly, tell me about the podcast you're starting. You mentioned you're starting a podcast. I want to know about <laughs> it. We got a lot of people who are listening to this like podcasts. So I want to know what you're doing and why we should mm-hmm. listen to it. <laughs> well, thanks, Jordan. It, it's really great to be with you. Um, I'm not sure that I'm an awesome Lutheran or not. I'll leave that for you to decide. Um, but as you said, my name's David Louie. I, I teach at the North American Lutheran Seminary, which is the, uh, the seminary for the North American Lutheran Church. And our seminary is embedded at Trinity School for Ministry, which is a, an Anglican seminary in Western Pennsylvania. I was, uh, I was raised in the Midwest, um, Freeport, Illinois, which is most people haven't heard of it. If you know much about small towns, you know that they typically have some um, story that sort of justifies why you should know about this small town. And for Freeport, there's two things. Um, the first is that our high school mascot is the pretzels. Um, so there's actually a sign out in front of my high school that says pretzel power on it. Um, so I'll let you just contemplate that. And then the second thing is it was the site of a Lincoln-Douglas debate. So anyway, that's a little bit about where I, where I grew up. I'm a convert to theological study. I, I originally wanted to be either a biologist or a musician, um, but then I started taking theology classes and just was irresistibly um, hooked by it. So, so here I am now teaching theology at a seminary. Uh, my theological education is in some ways, I guess you might say, ecumenically confused. I, I learned mostly 
as a Lutheran among evangelicals first, and then as a Lutheran among Roman Catholics. Um, so I, I, teaching at a Lutheran seminary is actually the first time I've been at a Lutheran um, institution of higher, a higher Christian education. In some ways, though, I guess if you average an evangelical with a Roman Catholic, you get something like Lutheranism. So maybe, maybe it works out that way. I, I'm not sure. We did just start a podcast at the seminary, and uh, the name of the podcast is Cardigan and Collar. Um, the, the idea behind it is that we're trying to, we're trying to heal the split that sometimes exists a bit between, um, between theologians like myself and pastors. And we're trying to make the case, um, that, uh, pastoral ministry is at its best theological and that theological teaching and theological study, um, is at its best ordered, um, primarily to the life of the church. So, um, our first season this year is going to be on catechesis, and although we are speaking primarily to um, the North American Lutheran Church, we we have a pretty uh, confessionally diverse lineup of guests, and we try to talk about it in a way that, even though you'll pick up our Lutheran accent a bit from time to time, um, I think you'd enjoy it even as a non-Lutheran. So that's my brief, yeah, a little bit about myself. I like it, and I, I think similar way of, of our own podcast here, where we're, we have a lot of different confessional perspectives that come on. You definitely hear that there's a Baptist accent. I like the way you've done. I'm gonna have to steal that from you. So <laughs> now, now I have to footnote uh, the Cardigan and Collar Cardigan and Collar podcast every time I use the accent uh, terminology. Now, let's start when we think about theological interpretation of Scripture. How does that really differ from other methods of reading the Bible? Or, I mean, you're probably going to say it's really it's not really a method. But how do I differentiate it from like just different approaches to to Scripture? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, there's been a lot of uh, there's been a lot of definitional hand wringing within the theological interpretation movement, and I think most would agree that there isn't a standard definition. Um, which is part of what I think has been frustrating, that you sort of, at times it feels like there's a, a, a definitional quagmire almost. You know, what are we talking about when we say theological interpretation? Um, probably to the extent that there is um, a coherence to the movement as a whole, or if there is even such a thing as a coherent movement, it probably just refers to folks who are, um, for one reason or another, um, not content with the status quo. And by status quo, I guess I'm referring here generally to something like uh, the ordinary conventions of modern historical critical uh, tools of exegesis, which of course is its own uh, difficult to define uh, thing. But I, I guess, you know, if I had to take a stab at what we're probably talking about, if we're using something like a phrase, theological interpretation, we probably mean one of at least three things, um, and maybe more than one. You might think about it as an approach to the interpretation of Scripture, um, which sees itself, which sees its task as in some way um, ordered to the formation of theological judgments. Um, and so I would say theological interpretation is alert to the fact that the reasons that bring us to the interpretation of a task are informed by the interpretive communities that we inhabit. And so when we approach a text from an academic setting, um, there's a sort of underlying assumption as to what we're trying to do and what reading is for. Um, and that m is probably going to look pretty different from what the church sees itself as doing, um, the why question. And, and, in the, and, and I would say um, that in general, theological interpreters want to say that the text at some level um, ought to be read with, with an eye towards the kind of formative impact of the text onto the reader or onto the religious community. And in that sense, um, because the theology is part of that formational process, um, we ought to be reading in such a way that part of the yield, if I can even use that term, um, is that we're coming out of the reading process having accumulated theological judgments, um, which which might not be the assumption if you're reading scripture from a different uh, from the perspective of a different interpretive community. Uh, so that's the first one. I'll try to be not quite so. Uh, I'll try to be briefer when I talk about the other two. The second would be, um, I would say, theological interpretation typically refers to ways of interpreting the text that are cognizant of the divine author, um, and, and additionally, 
and are therefore open to readings which seem on the face of it to transcend the ordinary rules of general hermeneutics, right? So those two things are linked. I mean, I'm not saying if you believe in a divine author that that by definition makes you a theological interpreter. It's really that additional statement that because there's a divine author, um, a theological reader is going to be inclined to say, and because of that fact, um, the typical conventions of general hermeneutics, while they may be an important piece of the puzzle, are not going to be fully adequate um, to the sorts of readings that we need to be open to. So just to give an example to make that more concrete, um, if I'm reading the story of the death of Absalom, you know, and I'm reading, I'm reading about, um, you know, David's lament where he says, you know, my son, Absalom, my son, oh, you know, would that I had died instead of you. And in fact, recently in a chapel message here at, at Trinity, a student preached on that text and, and interpreted figuratively as a pointer to, you know, the coming king who preferred to die in place of his wicked, you know, his wicked son, um, rather than for the, the judgment to fall upon him. And obviously, if according to the rules of general hermeneutics, that's, that would seem to be a fairly fanciful reading, right? Because you'd, the rules of general hermeneutics, again, I'm oversimplifying it, would want to say, it's not a legitimate reading unless you can somehow establish that the human author um, had it in their mind um, to project this particular meaning. Um, and, I, you know, I, I think it would be pretty difficult to establish that. If, however, you think, well, there's a divine author who is forming a canon within which there are all of these resonances and that those resonances are intentional, um, then it's going to open up the door to something like figural reading or allegorical reading or, you know, different kinds of layers to the text. And so I see those, I see those at bottoms as sort of... Um, extensions of the belief that there's a divine author and that that divine author is doing things with the signs and the words and the pictures of scripture, which at times even the human authors may actually not really be cognizant of. And, 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 and if you're willing to accept that premise, it kind of does some, um, some interesting things to your hermeneutics. And then the final, the final um, I would say, possible meaning to theological interpretation of scripture is um, readings of the text which, which, um, which allow for the contribution of something like a rule of faith to, to sort of place parameters around what is permissible in the exegetical process. And so what, what actually controls um, exegesis of Scripture from this perspective is not so much a scientific method through which all readings of the text must be um, processed, but actually more like um, this, this, these theological parameters, which we might call the rule of faith. And, and you know, so Augustine's famous text, um, De Doctrina Christiana, you know, he, he talks about how to arbitrate between different readings. Um, and he says, well, I mean, as long as the reading isn't violating the rule of faith, there's a certain level of freedom that you can contemplate possible readings and you, and you shouldn't feel as if you have to, um, you know, in the case of a, of, a, of a difficult text, there's space left for what, what we might as moderns call um, the deployment of various methodologies which yield different readings. And, and for Augustine, we don't need to like anoint one of those methodologies as the only one. We just need to make sure that we're not um, contravening uh, the rule of faith. And so long as we don't do that, there's a, there's a, there's a certain level of, of freedom in our exegetical reflection. So I realize that's a mouthful, um, but I would say theological interpretation of Scripture typically is going to involve um, some combination of those three different elements. Got it. That's helpful. And one thing that I learned about the theological interpretation of Scripture recently is that when you see the acronym TIS, you do not pronounce it TIS. It's T-I-S. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. I pronounced it the other way one time, and Brandon Smith uh, texted me and, and uh, reprimanded me for, for doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like I, don't, I still don't know how to pronounce the uh, G-I-F acronym, if it's GIF, GIF, or if I should be saying G-I-F. Um, uh, yes. So anyway, a, a parallel there. So when we think about the Psalms in particular, are there any general rules or sort of, I guess, I don't know, 
I always wonder if rules is an appropriate term to use when we come to, to interpreting Scripture, but how should we interpret and understand the Psalms well, and mm. how might they compare to other texts? I mean, is there are there things that we need to not be doing when we come to the Psalms that we're going to do with something else, and vice versa? Yeah, I. so my, my own view, I think it's, it's pretty unfortunate that sometimes um, what we call theological interpretation of Scripture— and what might be referred to as a historical grammatical or historical critical approach. I think it's unfortunate that, um, that those two um, avenues into the reading of the text have often functioned as uh, within, within the context of a, of a dichotomy, you know, as if somehow you kind of have to choose your team um, and, and that there's a kind of, there's, a, there's an assumption that, you, that these are contrary. You can't affirm, you can't affirm both. I, I tend to think I'm more of a have your cake and eat it too kind of uh, person with respect to this. I, I think that there are different layers um, of meaning that can be accessed through different reading strategies or reading approaches, uh, methods, I guess you could use that term. So when I think about, you know, if you ask the question, what's the right way to read the Psalms? Um, it's a little bit hard to answer in just a straightforward way because um, I tend to operate from a perspective that there's a there's a sort of inexhaustibility um, that attends the biblical text, and that means that um, you could preach the same text lots of different times. And uh, by no means would I want to suggest that all ways of reading the text are equally legitimate, but but I do believe that the um, there's more than one legitimate way to read and or preach a text. Um, you know, so for example. If you're preaching Psalm 22, um, I think it's perfectly, perfectly reasonable uh, to preach a text like that um, with respect to its likely context within the Zitzim Laban of, uh, you know, its original um, context within the religious life of Israel. I think there's plenty um, theologically um, to be harvested from that kind of a reading. But of course, the Psalm also is, um, is quite extensively um, accessed by the gospel writers as they talk about the crucifixion of Christ. And so it's also very fruitful to read the Psalms from that vantage point. So, so that's sort of a, I guess, as a preface to my, to my response, I'd want to say, I don't, I don't experience um, these, these different, these debates about readings as an either or. Um, there are some pressure points where there are fruitful disagreements for us to engage, but I don't see theological interpretation of Scripture at its best as a displacement hmm. of all that we've learned um, from from you know from biblical scholarship since the 19th century and and onwards. The Psalms in particular are interesting because um, the Psalms are somewhat unique in that, and I'm borrowing here from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he's borrowing from Luther, who's borrowing from Augustine. So there's a long kind of you know train of reflection here where he says that on the one hand, the Psalms are God's word to us, um, but in a sense, they're also our words to God that God gives us. Um, and and when, when you read the Psalms as the one who's praying the Psalms, it raises all sorts of interesting hermeneutical questions. Um, scholars sometimes talk about the issue of voice ambiguity, like who is praying right now and, and, um, and what right do I have um, to pray this person's prayer, you know, um, it, it, the Psalms, I think, force those sorts of hermeneutical questions in a way that perhaps other texts in scripture don't. And, um, you know, the tendency again is to create a set of options. One would be that the person, the voice of the Psalm is like a generic voice of piety. You know, in other words, the Psalms were written, as generic prayers that can be appropriated, they're specifically intended to be appropriated by individuals um, at various points in their life. Um, another option would be to say that the Psalms somehow immerse us into the prayer life of Israel or the prayer life of the church. Um, a third option is that there's actually some particular individual voice that's praying, and we enter into that individual's uh, prayer life. So certainly for Christians, we would think in terms of Christ as the one who prays the Psalms. 
Um, at least that's how um, Paul seems to think about it at the tail end of Romans, and it's how the author of Hebrews seems to think about it when you know it will reference Christ saying something, and then it gives the quote, and you think, well, where did Jesus say that in the Gospels? And, and you realize that actually what's happening is that uh, the words of the Psalter are being interpreted as, in some mysterious sense, uh, the voice of Christ. So again, I, I guess I would want to say um, that, 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 that we've made a mistake if we think somehow that these are options between which we must choose. And I, I would again want to go with Augustine, who sees Christ as the speaker of the Psalms, but Christ as the speaker not in the sense that the voice of the church or the voice of Israel is excluded, but in the sense that Christ as the representative of his people Israel, Christ as the, the, the figural head of his mystical body, the church, um, is standing in the place of humanity and is bringing to God and offering up in our place um, the intercessions and the prayers and the confessions, which is a very interesting um, concept that Christ confesses for us. Um, but that in so doing, he's not actually displacing our voice, nor is he displacing the voice of Israel. Um, and so I find when I talk about a Christological exegesis of the Psalms, I, I, I wouldn't want that to be understood as, um, as an alternative to seeing the Psalter as the voice of the community or as the voice of the generic pious individual, but rather that we find our voice in our representative head um, the new Israel, as it were, who is who is Christ Jesus. So, so broadly speaking, a Christological reading, um, but not a Christological reading in in an exclusive sense um, that might, um, you know, it might sound that way initially, but but that's not how I think about it. Yeah, I like that. So, one thing I've seen in a lot of Psalm scholarship is how um, we shouldn't individually abstract the Psalms by themselves and just think I need to interpret just Psalm 49 as Psalm 49. There's also an importance in the uh, placement of the Psalms next to each other. I, I was wondering if you could comment on the order of the Psalms and how that might really impact interpretation and why we mm. should think that that might be divinely, um, provided for us in that particular way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of two levels to think about that. I mean, one is the fact that clearly the Psalms were redacted, meaning they were they were collected and put together in a particular way. And um, sometimes we, we talk in terms of authorial intent, but it might be useful to think in terms of redactorial att- um, intent. I'm not sure if that's actually um, an, uh, an ad- a real adverb, but hopefully you know what I mean by that. Um, and there has been a real... Well, I guess I promised a second way. And then there's, you know, there's, you have to think about whether God himself intends for the Psalms to be organized in a particular way. Um, there's been a lot of research on that, as you probably know. I mean, um, is it Gerald Wilson? I, mean, I always forget his first name, but it's, I, I believe it's Gerald Wilson wrote the sort of defining text on this, on the shape of the, of the Psalter. And he sort of makes this case that the, the Psalter comes together um, in layers. And there's evidence of this if you compare the ordering of the Psalter um, in Qumran. And I mean, it gets very technical. I wouldn't want to claim much special expertise in that area, but there does seem to be, um, there seems to be layers um, of developmental history through which the Psalms come to take on their final form. And um, by and large, that that canonical organization seems to reflect um, two main uh, preoccupations. One is a kind of messianic inflection, um, the fact that we begin Psalm, Psalm 1 and 2, uh, you know, function as a sort of preface to the Psalter. And then at critical junctures throughout the remainder um, of the Psalter, you find um, royal Psalms occupying conspicuous places of importance um, elsewhere in the Psalms. One might think of Psalms like Psalm 72 or Psalm 89, um, Psalm 110. And, and these are sort of, they seem to be strategically placed um, to, to tell a certain kind of story. And that leads to the second point, which is that the Psalter seems to have this kind of eschatological thrust, right? That there's a, that there's a kind of initial set of promises, um, which, 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 um, guide the reader in a particular trajectory of, of, of hope. And then those hopes are transformed, um, through a process of what we might think of as mortification, right? That they, 
you know, Psalm 89 looks like this kind of colossal um, low point, this failure of the, of the messianic promises. And, um, and then there's a kind of rehabilitation of this and an eschatological inflection that's brought in. So, so I, I do tend to think that that's right, that something like that story is being told through the organization of the Psalter. Um, it's a little bit tough to know sometimes how specifically to apply that schema to the interpretation of a particular psalm. Um, I tend to be a bit, um, I don't know if agnostic is the right word. I, I think that you can certainly, at the broadest level, draw some inferences about how this arrangement is encouraging us to think about uh, the message of the psalms. Um, but, I, but I have to say, sometimes when I read the commentaries and they they draw hugely significant hermeneutical inferences on the basis of a kind of speculative reconstruction of this um, editorial process. I'm just, I'm not quite sure, um, I'm not quite sure how far to go with some of that, um, because it does seem to me like there's just quite a bit that we don't know. Um, but I do think, yeah, I, I guess I'm rambling at this point, but I do generally think that there's, there's something to be said for that framework informing our reading and our reception of the Psalter. So that's very helpful. I, I want to know uh, if you could give me an example, just pick your favorite psalm or one of your favorite texts there that, and give me sort of like the high-level overview of how we should interpret that psalm well. Mm-hmm. Well, I had an opportunity recently to, to write something on Psalm 102, um, so I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit. It's a, it's a fascinating psalm. It's located in Book 4 of the Psalter, which generally scholars will, will uh, want to emphasize that there's been a kind of, Israel is now um, positioned in the aftermath of a kind of deconstruction of sorts, where um, its hopes have been called into question, um, and there's a kind of getting back to basics um, uh, feel to, to Book 4 of the Psalter, um, there's an emphasis upon the kingship of God. There's an emphasis upon the fleetingness of human life. And we might think about Psalm 90, this emphasis upon, you know, all flesh um, is, like, is like grass and passes away and so forth. And when you get to Psalm 102, it's, it's an individual complaint is the way that um, form critics will typically identify it. And so if you look in verses 1 through 11, and then again in verses 23 and 24, um, you see someone is speaking from a place of real desolation. They're speaking from a place of real um, desperation. And, and then the, the narrative arc of the psalm, like many individual complaints, um, sort of bends its way towards deliverance, that, that, the, that in the end, there's an anticipation of the Lord's rescue, um, which unfolds. And so in that sense, it's a kind of conventional um, complaint psalm, but there's some interesting surprises if you take a closer look at it. Um, one interesting surprise is that the complaint is expressed in individual terms, right? So it's a particular individual who is um, who's setting forth, um, you know, their um, the problems that they're facing and the desolation that they are that they're experiencing. But then, when you get to the deliverance section, it's a corporate restoration, right? So it's not, and there, there's, at least on the face of it, there's a kind of mismatch that you have an individual asking God to help, help me in my specific particular um, place of desolation. But then it says, but I know, you know, if you look to verses uh, 20, 20, uh, 25 to 28 and so forth, um, the promise is that the Lord will build up Zion, right? And that the Lord will establish this eternal city um, a city that, unlike the cities of this world, um, will not fade. And, and then, to, you know, another surprise to the text is that the psalm concludes with this almost, I mean, I hesitate to use the word metaphysical, but metaphysical meditation on, on the imperishability of God in contrast to all created things. And, and I would say, I mean, just to kind of cut to the chase, we could develop this a lot more. In a sense, when you, when you reflect on that juxtaposition, um, it seems to me that the question that the psalmist is wanting us to think about is, um, what's the real crisis um, from which human beings um, are longing to be delivered? 
Um, it's almost like the psalmist is saying, it's not the surface level crisis, right? It's not the immediate occasion, like whatever trouble you might be experiencing now. It's actually the crisis beneath the crisis. Um, it's, it's the fact that we live our lives um, within the domain of vanishing shadows, as the psalm you know, puts it. That we, we, we ourselves and everything about this world that we, that we love and that we enjoy and that we take delight in um, belongs to that order of things, which as the apostle Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 7, that order of things which passeth away. And so then it, it, that, that insinuates that the real object of our longing when we cry out to God, and this is, not to, um, this is not to disparage the very real struggles um, of our immediate circumstance, but it's to say that the true kind of the deepest object of our longing is not actually um, the immediate deliverance from harm, it has to do with deliverance from that whole economy of corruptible things so that we might come to participate in a God and in a kingdom, which is truly imperishable. And so I, I see this as a kind of um, eschatological um, intensification of Israel's hope that, um, and, 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 and this is certainly how early Christians read Psalms like this, that there's a way in which the promises of a coming kingdom which we might initially interpret in earthly terms, um, that actually that's, that's a figural anticipation of a greater realization of those hopes in an eternal city when, when the new Jerusalem will come down. And it's a city unlike any other city we've ever experienced because it's a city um, which participates in something of the, of the transcendence and the eternality and the imperishability of God. Um, and so, I mean, just, just, I mean, briefly in terms of, you can easily read this Psalm as a prayer prayed by Jesus, right? As the one who, um, gathers up the hopes of Israel and, uh, and sort of in a sense is that paradigmatic instance of longing for the kingdom of God, the kind of longing that ought to be, uh, that ought to characterize us. But in a sense, what we see in him is that, is, is the perfect realization of that longing. So you can see him as the one who prays the psalm. You can also see Jesus as the one in whom the prayer is answered. Um, and this is how Hebrews takes it in Hebrews chapter one and two. Um, it's part of this katina, very fascinating because those metaphysical reflections on the imperishability of God, um, Hebrews tells us that actually um, the proper referent of those, of those uh, reflections is Jesus. Um, it's a, it's a fast, it's to me, one of the most striking, uh, interpretations of Israel's scripture that we have in the new Testament. And there's a whole long backstory to how it, you know, how early Christians seem to have come to read, um, Psalm 102 in this way, but it's just, it's just very fascinating because my impulse when reading the Psalm would be to say, you know, Israel is the, he's the representative who is praying on behalf of Israel. Right. But, but Hebrews reads it and says, actually he's, Yes, he is that, but he's also, he's the one in whom that longing is answered. So that's a little bit about Psalm, Psalm 102. That's awesome. So one thing I want to really know from you is, does Luther read the Psalms differently than this? Uh, does he read the Psalms differently than, well, you know, the medieval scholastics are, are pretty popular today. Yep. Is he reading and thinking differently than them? And if so, how and why is he doing that? Yeah. Well, so Luther loved the Psalms. I should probably start there. Um, he lectured on them several times. He preached on them often. Um, I once read, I don't know if this is actually accurate or not, but at least one scholar thought that the closest thing we have to a systematic theology from Luther's pen um, is, is a set of sermons he preached on Psalm 110. Um, which is a fascinating claim, and it is a wonderful text. It's quite long. Um, but, you know, to ask the question, how does Luther read the Psalms? I mean, partly you kind of have to specify, well, which Luther are we talking about? Um, so Luther lectures on the Psalms in between 1513 and 1515. Um, those are referred to by scholars as his dictata, super saltarium. Um, he lectures on them again in 1519 to 1521. 
Um, and what's interesting is that in the meantime, of course, a lot has changed in Luther's life. Um, by the time you get to the later lectures, he's in quite a bit of theological trouble um, with, the, with the Roman Catholic magisterium. And something seems to have changed, right, in his theological outlook between 1515 and 1519. Um, but it's actually quite a bit more difficult to suss out exactly what has changed. And Luther scholars um, are constantly squabbling amongst, the, amongst themselves as to what exactly is the nature of Luther's Reformation breakthrough, or is it even appropriate to speak in terms of a Reformation breakthrough? Um, so these are complex questions, and all of that um, is pertinent to the question you've asked, which is does, what kind of break does Luther make um, with medieval readings of the Psalms in particular? What we can say with all of those you know, somewhat... Um, you know, somewhat boring qualifications now having been registered, is that Luther in the dictata, uh, that is the earlier lectures, is is more comfortable with the quadriga um, than he will be in later um, iterations of his commentary on the Psalms. So if you read the dictata, he's, you know, he reads very much like a typical late medieval um, exegete. Um, you know, he's he's appealing to the tropological sense, the allegorical sense, um, the anagogical sense and so forth. So he mo moves with a certain degree of fluency within those categories. And by the time you get to the later Luther, he's he's wanting to recover something of the primacy of the literal sense. Um, and in that sense, there is some discontinuity. He also, um, at least according to Brian German, who wrote a great book on Luther's Psalms interpretation called Psalms of the Faithful, he, ha he seems to have more space within his theological imagination in the later Psalms lectures for the Psalms as um, giving us access to the faithful voice of Israel. Um, so in the earlier interpretations, Luther is much more um, strictly Christological or strictly ecclesiological in his reading. Um, by the time you get to 1519, you're starting to hear a little bit more of um, these Old Testament saints, at, that something of their piety, something of their spirituality is preserved for us in a salutary way in the Psalter. And, and reading between the lines, it's almost as if Luther is saying, um, don't, don't just collapse the Psalter into nothing but a Christological source book. Um, you know, you, it's important that we hear the voice of Israel um, to an extent in the Psalter. Now, does this mean that Luther is a kind of forerunner of modern historical grammatical exegesis? This is where the story, I think, gets quite a bit more complicated. And part of it is that when we hear literal sense, we typically think, oh, yeah, that's what historical grammatical interpreters are trying to get at is the literal sense. Luther does not mean this by the literal sense. Luther, by literal sense, means that which the text is most um, fundamentally about. Okay? And for Luther... And he's borrowing here a bit from some late medieval interpreters like Nicholas of Lyra. For Luther, oftentimes the literal sense is the Christological sense. Um, so I sometimes have had a little bit of fun when you know teaching seminarians about Luther's exegesis because they have it in their minds that you know part of what we love about Luther is he got rid of all of this sort of fanciful spiritual exegesis and he gave us you know the kind of modern historical grammatical approach to the interpretation of the text. And then I give them, um, there's, a, there's a treatise that Luther writes late in his life. It's called Commentary on the Last Words of David. And what Luther does in that text is he interprets David's last words to Solomon in a Trinitarian and Christological fashion. And, you know, it's like you start to realize pretty quickly um, Luther can't quite be squeezed into the categories that we've created as moderns, that if you're theological, you're X, and if, you're, if you believe in the literal sense, you're Y. It just doesn't quite map that way for him. Another thing that's a little bit perplexing and in some ways I would say wonderful about Luther is on the one hand, he can just be fiercely critical of allegorical readings of the text. Um, this is the Luther I think most of us know. But then, you know, you'll catch him, for example, in, in his uh, lectures on Genesis, which again is pretty late in his life. This is late, mid to late um, 1530s, 1540s, not long before Luther dies. And he gets to um, the, Noah, um, the Noah story and the question of Noah's Ark and, and whether we should how we should read this story. And Luther just says like, you know, um, 
lots of lots of versions of allegorical reading are good and salutary, and by no means should we get rid of them. You know, we have to be careful how we use allegory. He has certain controls, certain rules for how we do that. In some ways, he ends up sounding a lot like some of um, some medieval authors who were on the end of the spectrum of emphasizing the primacy of the literal sense. You know, wanting that to sort of exercise primacy of place. Um, so. Yeah, it's, it's a complex question, but I would say that, um, you know, there's a whole lot more continuity uh, between Luther. He uses different categories. Um, he certainly is being very critical of the, what he saw as the excesses of late medieval um, spiritual readings of the text. But by and large, if you were to kind of, um, if you could imagine a hypothetical where you just um, pull out quotes from biblical commentaries and you just sort of scatter them on a table you would probably in more cases assume reading Luther that he's a, he's a medieval, you know, patristic reader of the text. than you would identify him with the impulses that we um, tend to associate with, with modern critical exegesis. So he, he's a pretty theological reader of the text um, in my view, at least. Excellent. Are there any resources? Uh, I, I guess you mentioned commentary on the last words of David from him. What, what else should people be reading if they're interested in getting their hands on Luther and particularly mm. is just scriptural interpretation in general. Well, I suppose I'd be remiss if I didn't recommend uh, Todd Haynes's book, who you mentioned earlier. Um, he, he's got a great book on Luther and the rule of faith. That's a great place to start. In terms of primary texts um, on Luther, from Luther, I, I like to point um, folks to a short treatise that Luther wrote um, that's called what to expect and to look for when reading the Gospels. Um, he wrote this, if memory serves, he wrote this as a kind of preface to his church postal, which is a collection of sermons that were able to be used by um, pastors throughout the liturgical year. And um, it, it's a really beautiful text. It's a short text. And, um, and you can see just how theological of a reader of Scripture Luther is, because, you know, not, not unlike Augustine, and, and many other pre-modern readers, Luther basically, you know, he, he, wants, he wants us to know that the best way to find our bearings when reading the scriptures is to have a clear understanding of what the scriptures are about, right? So it's not a methodology. It's actually a theological um, mooring. He's borrowing a lot from a, a, a distinction from Hilary of Poitiers, where he talks about, on the one hand, you have the werba of the text. Those are the words, you know, when we use grammar and, and, and uh, all of the tools of linguistic analysis to kind of familiarize our, ourselves with the words. But the words are distinct from the race, which is the substance of what the text is about. And Luther constantly is saying, He's constantly emphasizing the fact that it's possible to have incredible sophistication at the level of the werba with, while being completely ignorant of the race. And um, of course, what we want is both. But if you have to choose between the two, Luther thinks you really need to know the race. And for him, um, the race is, is, uh, is, is Christ. I mean, is the, is the gospel. And Luther defines the gospel in that text as just the narrative of Jesus' life, its discourse concerning Christ. And, um, and so in, in that sense, he's really operating as a theological reader. And so that's, that's the text I would recommend. There's others, of course, but that's, that's the place I'd start. That's good. And finally, I want to know, do you have any just tips for us modern Westerners who might be disengaged from poetry hmm. to read the Psalms well? Uh, I think a lot of us just don't either have the adequate desire to learn about poetry or just aren't good at it? <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's a, that's an interesting question. Um, I mean, of course it helps to learn a little bit about how poetry functions. I mean, this sort of speaks to the whereby side of things. Um, there's some great books on how Hebrew poetry works. And I do think that those things are just incredibly illuminating and can be very helpful for us. Um, but I, I suspect that the reason, to the extent that we struggle, I suspect it's a deeper disconnect, right? It's not just that we lack the tools for proper analysis. Um, it, it's, it's a deeper issue that, you know, as someone who's now taught in a seminary for, you know, for about a decade, I, I will sometimes get students in my office who um, are expressing a sense of disillusionment that coming to seminary has 
um, seemingly deprive them of the ability to read scripture for purposes of spiritual nourishment, right? They've, they've, they've accumulated, um, they've, they've accumulated a, a, a wider tool set. You know, they know how to parse verbs and they know how to think in terms of um, biblical backgrounds and so forth. Um, but in the meantime, for some reason, and I don't mean to suggest there's some nefarious conspiracy here, um, it's just, it's, a, it's an unintended consequence um, of going through that curriculum that when the time comes to um, read scripture for purposes of formation, um, which gets back to that emphasis I was talking about a little bit ago, um, we somehow kind of forget how to do that. And, um, and I think that's probably really what's going on in our disconnect from the Psalms, because the Psalms don't really lend themselves to um, an approach to reading whose primary purposes the primary purpose is um, the acquisition of information. Um, reading the Psalms well doesn't quite lend itself well to a posture of methodological detachment. Um, the Psalms are self-involving, right? Just by nature, they are self-involving. Um, Marcus Bachmuel talks about, you know, the intended reader that the text sort of presupposes. And for the Psalms, right, um, the reader that the psalmist is anticipating is not a detached reader. It's a reader who is coming to the text um, from the vantage point of a particular spiritual posture, right? And so, and so there's, there's a sense in which um, we have to somehow immerse ourselves, habituate ourselves, enter into, or, or allow ourselves to be immersed into a world of discourse where um, we actually are not coming to the text primarily um, as an interpreter. We're coming to the text as one who prays. Um, and I, you know, I think that to the extent we find that difficult, it's probably the sign of a theological dysfunction more than it is the sign of a methodological dysfunction. That um, if we no longer are animated by an impulse to cry for God's mercy, if we no longer sense um, a desire to exclaim the praises of God with joy, um, if we no longer feel a need to weep over the devastations um, of this world in which we live, it seems to me that something must have gone wrong um, in our theologizing or perhaps in our preaching um, because, because those are all aspects of being rightly ordered to reality, right? Um, that, that the human self is meant to crave the coming kingdom of God. And if our theology is not um, deepening that longing or isn't quickening that longing, um, you know, that, that's a sign to us that something has gone wrong. And, and probably our inability to access the Psalter um, is a bit like a canary in the mine, right? It's, you know, that, 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 that something has gone wrong. So in terms of how to fix that, I mean, I, this, um, I don't have like a, I don't have a silver bullet. Um, I think practically speaking, there's no substitute for just instituting a discipline of reading, praying, and singing the Psalms, um, and allow the Psalms to do their thing, right? So sometimes I think we get this idea that we have to kind of um, produce the efficacy of the scriptures through our ingenuity or through our methodological purity. Um, you know, as a Lutheran, and I, I think this is shared widely across the various traditions, but, you know, the efficacy of the text isn't, um, of course, we need to do our homework and we need to apply our um, skills of reading and, 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 and you know, and uh, sharpen those. But, but ultimately, the efficacy of the text resides in God um, as mediated to us through the text, as the ordained means through which God offers us Christ and the ordained means through which he um, mortifies and vivifies um, sinners. And so I think my advice to someone struggling with that would, would, would mostly just be, you know what, um, just, just give yourself over um, to a habit of reading the Psalms, not so much as a discipline, you know, to prove your, you know, to, to prove your piety, but but just from the recognition that if you do that, God, God will um, change you through the efficacy of his word. And that, that I think, is probably uh, the best advice I could give in terms of um, overcoming the disconnect that you're describing. 
Well, I'm very glad I asked that question because the last five minutes have been just absolutely uh, tremendous and enriching. So thank you for offering that right there. That was really, really helpful. Um, the last quick thing I want to ask you is if people want to read your work, is there an easy place for them to go to find out uh, like links and things like that? Well, I suppose my faculty page um, at the seminary, either Trinity School for Ministry or the North American Lutheran Seminary, um, lists some of the stuff that I've been working on. Um, probably <laughs> a lot of it is behind a paywall or something because a lot of it's in journals and encyclopedias. So hopefully folks could could access it, you know, through a library. Um, the book that I, I worked on um, has to do with Luther's Christology. So if you're interested in that, uh, it came out with Fortress Press in 2014. So um, if you're interested, that'd be a place to look as well. Awesome. Well, thanks, David. This has been great. We appreciate you taking the time to talk with us about these things. And everybody who's been listening and tuning in, I commend you to go check out David's work, uh, including the 2014 book on Lutheran Christology. Uh, keep up with his work, obviously, and keep up with the podcast that they're starting. Um, I, I love having people who care deeply about Scripture uh, and theology on the podcast who also have a pastoral heart and focus. So tell you, you need, apparently all these Lutherans are awesome. Every Lutheran I meet is awesome. So uh, we, we've had a very good high success rate with Lutherans coming on the podcast. So thanks, David. Uh, everybody's been tuning in. We appreciate you listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. Vacation starts with VA. One thing you'll love about your trip to Virginia is that you'll never have to settle for one thing. All that you love is all in one trip. Start yours at virginia.org.